Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking a Moscow Mule. What do you have, Del? I am drinking a peach Bellini, and on this week's episode, we are concluding our serial killer-themed episodes as we look at the crimes of Earl Nelson, also known as the Gorilla Killer or the Dark Strangler. Nelson terrorized both the United States and Central Canada and is considered one of, if not the first sexual serial killer of the 20th century. Before we detail his crimes, we need to look back at what created such a monster. Nelson was born Earl Leonard Farrell on May 12, 1897 in San Francisco, California to Grances Nelson and James Farrell. Before he was two years old, both of his parents died from complications of syphilis. Nelson was sent to his maternal grandmother, who was a devout Pentecostal, and he was raised with her two younger children, who were much older than Earl. Even at a young age, people noticed something was off with him. He was described as exhibiting self-loathing and other morbid behaviors. At the age of seven, he was expelled from primary school. At 10, he was hit by a streetcar while he was riding his bike. He was unconscious for six days, and after he awoke, his behavior was erratic, and he suffered from headaches and memory loss. Nelson has been described as a quote-unquote psychotic prodigy, and his manic behaviors included talking to invisible people, compulsively quoting biblical passages, and watching female family members in various states of undress. He would often exchange his clean clothes with ones from homeless people he would meet on his way home from school. The influence of his religiously devout grandmother manifested in Nelson through his obsessive reading of the book of Revelations as a teenager. Despite this, Nelson was known to visit San Francisco brothels, brothels where he contracted a venereal disease. Not all of his behaviors were negative, though. He would often entertain his family with his ability to walk on his hands and lift heavy objects with his teeth. As in the case with many eventual killers, Nelson's crime started small with trespassing into a cabin for which he was sent to San Quentin State Prison in 1915. He was paroled the next year, but was arrested again while still on parole for petty larceny. He was in prison for six months and then released. Five months later, he was arrested in Los Angeles for burglary. He spent five months in the Los Angeles jail before escaping. In late 1917, Nelson enlisted in different military branches with different names, but deserted each time. Nelson was seen by many different mental health practitioners who observed different things about his mental state. While enlisted in the Navy, he was sent to Napa State Mental Hospital after having been observed behaving oddly and erratically. A Navy psychologist stated Nelson was, quote, living in a constitutional psychotic state, end quote. At Napa State, the psychologist said that Nelson did not appear, quote, violent, homicidal, or destructive, end quote. William Pertak, 
conducted a complete psychiatric screening and observed that Nelson spoke of hallucinating and paranoid delusions. He stated, quote, he has seen faces, heard music, and at times believed people were poisoning him. Voices sometimes whisper to him to kill himself, says that if he were kept in jail, he would get something sharp and cut the veins in his wrists, end quote. Nelson escaped from Napa State three times before the staff stopped trying to locate him. On May 17, 1919, Nelson was discharged from the Navy in absentia, and his file with the hospital was closed with the note that he had quote-unquote improved. Nelson then got a job as a janitor and met Mary Martin, a 60-year-old administrative worker. She would leave him six months later for what she said was Nelson quote-unquote making her life hell, with jealous rages, bizarre sexual demands, and increasingly violent behavior. On May 19, 1921, Nelson posed as a plumber and snuck into the Summer residence. He attempted to molest 12-year-old Mary Summers, but was stopped by Mary's older brother. Nelson left but was captured hours later. He was returned to Napa State Mental Hospital. At the competency hearing, Nelson was determined to be dangerous and was committed again. He escaped two more times and was discharged from the hospital in 1925. Early 1926 marked the start of his killing spree. Clara Newman was his first known victim. Newman was a wealthy San Francisco landlady and Nelson posed as a potential tenant under the name Roger Wilson. He strangled her and then raped her before hiding the body in an apartment in the house. Laura Beale was his next victim and he followed the same pattern. On June 26, 1926, Nelson killed and raped Lillian St. Mary and two weeks later killed and raped Ollie Russell. Russell's autopsy helped connect the murder when the police noted the similarities, particularly the fact that the victims were raped after they were killed. On August 16th, Mary Nesbitt became the next victim and her body was found in one of her empty apartments. Witnesses told the police they saw a quote-unquote smiling stranger outside of Nisbet's building. Others described Nelson as, quote, a dark and stocky man with long arms and large hands, end quote, which led to the moniker of the Dark Strangler, Gorilla Man, and the Gorilla Killer. In late 1926, Nelson moved to Portland, Oregon, and shortly after, he raped and murdered another landlady, Beta Withers, on October 19th. Her body was found by her son stuffed in the attic. The next day, Nelson killed Virginia Grant and hid her body in a furnace. On October 21st, Nelson strangled Mabel Fluke with a scarf. Originally, instead of ruling it a murder, a coroner's jury was split on whether her death was a homicide or suicide. Nelson returned to San Francisco and committed another rape and murder, this of Anna Edmonds. The police were reluctant to connect Edmund's death to the other until an eyewitness description of a man Edmunds had told a friend stopped by matched the description of the quote-unquote dark strangler. The next day, Nelson attacked a pregnant woman in Burlingame, California. She survived that attack and noted the man's odd behaviors. On November 29th, Blanche Myers was murdered and raped by Nelson. 
Nelson left fingerprints in Meyer's bedpost and led to a media and police frenzy where many people called in quote-unquote suspicious characters. That same day, a woman called the police to report that one of her tenants had said he was leaving the border house for Vancouver, Washington. She found this strange because he paid in advance for the board. He also gave her and other female tenants a gift that was confirmed to belong to the November 23rd victim of Nelson, Florence Monks. In Council Bluffs, Iowa, Nelson murdered and raped Almira Beard. Her death was ruled a suicide until it was confirmed that she was raped. On December 27th, Bonnie Pace was murdered and raped in Kansas City, Missouri, in her home. The following day, Germania Halperin and her eight-month-old son, Robert, were found murdered in her Kansas City home. Nelson then moved eastward, and on April 27, 1927, he murdered Mary McConnell in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Nelson tried to sell one of Mary's gold watches to a pawn shop, but couldn't. On May 27th, Jenny Randolph was murdered and raped in her Buffalo, New York home. Randolph had rented a room to Nelson, who used the name Charles Harrison. He was later identified when another boarder matched Nelson to his description of, quote-unquote, Charles Harrison. On June 1st, Fannie Mae and her boarder, Maureen Althory, were murdered in Detroit, Michigan. Two days later, Nelson murdered another woman in Chicago, Illinois. Nelson then moved north to Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. On June 8, 1927, Lola Cowan disappeared while selling flowers door to door. Emily Patterson went missing on June 10th. She was found by her husband, raped and beaten under their son's bed. Emily's wedding ring was sold by Nelson to a jeweler who would later identify the seller as Nelson. The police launched a search of boarding houses, and on August 12th, they found Lola Cowan's decomposing body while searching Nelson's room. The Winnipeg police created a reward for information that led to the, quote, conviction of the criminal degenerate. End quote. The Canadian police assumed Nelson had returned to the United States and sent his information to American police departments in an effort to locate him. Despite this, Nelson was cited still in Canada and Virginia, Saskatchewan, and other areas in Manitoba. On June 14th, Nelson Polden as Mike Molsky was arrested at the Minnesota-Manitoba border but escaped. He was captured 12 hours later when he boarded a train that was also transporting police officers. Nelson's photo and fingerprints were taken and sent to police departments who used the photos to connect Nelson to his U.S. crimes. Initially, Nelson admitted to his crimes, bluntly telling reporters, quote, I only do my lady killings on Saturday nights, end quote. He would later retract his admission and claim he was innocent. Upon an interview with the Manitoba Free Press shortly after his arrest, he said, quote, I'm charged with two murders, but I'm not the one who done it, end quote. When asked about the various persons in the U.S. and Canada who had positively identified him as the strangler, he simply responded, quote, all of them are wrong, end quote. Despite attempts on part of both U.S. and Canadian law enforcement agencies to elicit confessions, though Nelson refused to admit to any of the crimes of which he was accused, he has been linked to a total of 22 murders that occurred between 1926 and 1927. At the time of his arrest, Nelson was wanted in six U.S. cities and was held to be tried in a Manitoba court for the murders of both Cowan and Patterson. 
He was also charged with two counts of attempted molestation and one count of burglary. Nelson's ex-wife, Mary Martin, testified against him, claiming that he was quote-unquote absolutely insane. A jail guard who oversaw Nelson throughout his trial noted that he had become particularly obsessed with a certain biblical passage from the book of Proverbs, which read, My son, give me thine heart and let thine eyes observe my ways. For a whore is a deep ditch, and a strange woman is a narrow pit. She also lieth in wait as for a prey, and increaseth the transgressors among men. After 40 minutes of deliberation, the jury found him guilty of murder, and he received a mandatory death sentence. Despite the abundance of affidavits, the appeal was denied and Nelson's execution was scheduled for the second Friday of January. Nelson was executed by hanging at 7.30 a.m. on January 13, 1928 at the Vaughn Street Jail in Winnipeg. His final words were, quote, I forgive those who have wronged me, end quote. Jenny, what are your thoughts on the guerrilla killer Earl Nelson? I had never heard of him, and this was very disturbing and not something I necessarily expected. I think he's probably one of the most mentally ill people we've talked about, and I really think he should have been kept committed that first time he was committed to a psychiatric facility. Yeah, he, of course, had escaped a few times, and he just needed to be probably in higher security. I think we all know that mental health facilities at that time period were not the best quality. And I think that probably shows with Nelson a little bit. And it also seems like they kind of just gave up on him. Like they knew he was bad and that there was really nothing they could do. I mean, we even said that they were sick of looking for him when he escaped. So I think that really goes to show what their feelings were right there. We kind of talked about this a little bit, but I always find it really interesting when someone receives head trauma and I don't know if Nelson's personality changed drastically, but it seems like he had some personality and behavioral changes because of that, although he was already displaying weird behaviors. And I think that's really interesting. It was pretty interesting to me, too, to hear about all of the strange stuff he was doing as a child. Definitely a lot of red flags there. But of course, at that time period, no one knew what the signs of a serial killer were. No one even knew what a serial killer was. So if someone was doing that today, I would kind of hope that maybe their family would be able to step in and get them better treatment. But it's kind of no surprise to me that he ended up how he did. And I have to say too, for one year killing 22 people, that's crazy. That's really disturbing. And he was just like, I don't want to say running, I'm not going to say running through people, but his victim count is really sad and scary. What do you think? I definitely agree with you. I think this is definitely a case of what if, you know, like what if he had gotten the help that he needed as a child? What if that accident never happened to him? What if Napa State was even a little bit confident in making sure that even if he was frequently escaping, that they were making sure that he was returned back to the hospital. I also find it strange that they kind of sanitized his record as well, placing a note that he had improved, even though 
the only reason why he was discharged from their care was that he had escaped and he was discharged from the Navy. So it's not that they observed that his behavior had gotten any better. It's just that, you know, they were kind of closing his file off. And yeah, this is definitely a case of someone who had a very high murder count. And some of these instances, he was murdering the very next day. Sometimes when people talk about it, they talk about serial killers, they talk about the need that builds up and how for different serial killers that a kind of drive changes. So you have some serial killers that can go years without committing another murder while you have others that have a very short cooling off period. And this is definitely the case with Nelson. I do find it strange how easily he was able to just really transverse the entire nation. I mean, he started in San Francisco and ended up in Philadelphia, which is literally across the country from one another. And this was not the days of like modern airfare. And he did all this without really maintaining regular means of employment. When researching, he just always stayed at boarding homes. And his victims were uh, mainly landladies. And he would be posing as a potential tenant to, I guess, get a level of trust and privacy with his potential victims. And so... When you have these like two opposite things of like he clearly has some mental health issues, but also his murders were planned to a certain extent. Like he had to look for the listings. He had to find the locations. He had to travel. And then he ended up going to Canada as another means of evading detection. And I don't know if we've really talked about a case that has such a contrast between the actions and mental state of the perpetrator. That is a really good point about, you know, the actions and the mental state. And what you said about him just being able to so easily like move across the country, that is really wild. And I don't want to say impressive, but it clearly helped him. And it helps a lot of serial killers. I've listened to some podcasts where they talk about how a serial killer's car is like the greatest piece of equipment in their life that helps them get away with these crimes. And especially back then, people weren't putting together crimes that happen in San Francisco versus Philadelphia. I mean, we don't even see that necessarily happening now in some instances, not easily at least. So really had the advantage of being a criminal in the 1920s to his advantage. And one of the more disturbing pieces of this case is the fact that Earl Nelson was a necrophiliac, which is a type of paraphilia. Defined by WebMD, paraphilias are abnormal sexual behaviors or impulses characterized by intense sexual fantasy and urges that keep coming back. The urges and behaviors may involve unusual objects, activities, or situations that are not usually considered sexually arousing by others. Many terms have been used to describe atypical sexual interests, and there remains a debate regarding technical accuracy and perceptions of stigma. 
Sexologist John Money popularized the term paraphilia as a non-pejorative designation for unusual sexual interests. In the late 19th century, psychologists and psychiatrists started to categorize various paraphilias as they wanted a more descriptive system than the legal and religious constructs of sodomy and perversion. In 1981, an article published in the American Journal of Psychiatry described paraphilia as, quote, recurrent, intense, sexually arousing fantasy, sexual urges, or behaviors generally involving, end quote, the following, non-human objects, the suffering or humiliation of oneself or one's partner, children, and non-consenting persons. Simply having a paraphilia is not illegal. Acting in response to paraphilic urges, however, may be illegal and in some cases subjects the person with paraphilia to severe legal sanctions. The importance of these distinctions, particularly when it comes to paraphilias, cannot be overemphasized. Sex offenders are not necessarily persons with paraphilia, and persons with paraphilia are not all sex offenders. Most individuals with this sexual deviation are men, and it's roughly 3 to 5% of the male population, with just 1 to 6% of individuals being women. Some examples include erotic asphyxiation, which is asphyxia of oneself or others. This includes autoerotic asphyxiation, which is self-induced, sometimes to the point of near unconsciousness. Necrophilia, which is corpses. Pedophilia, which is prepubescent children. Pickerism, which is the piercing of the flesh of another person, most commonly by stabbing or cutting the body with sharp objects. Sexual masochism, which involves inflicting pain upon oneself. Sexual sadism, which is inflicting pain on others. Somnophilia, which is sleeping or unconscious people. Transvestic fetishism, which is the frequent and intense sexual arousal from cross-dressing, which causes clinically sufficient distress or impairment. Voyeurism, which is observing an unsuspecting and non-consenting person who is undressing or unclothed or engaged in sexual activity. And finally, zoophilia, which is the attraction to non-human animals. While our examples focus mainly on paraphilias that, if acted upon, are illegal, there are a host of legal paraphilias. Some consider these kinks that should not cause any adverse social effect towards the person. Examples include foot fetishes, cuckolds, and BDSM. Jenny, what are your thoughts on paraphilias and the concept of not yucking someone's yum? So like we said, some paraphilias that we listed are not very unusual and can definitely be harmless or acted upon safely, but others are really harmful to say the least. I think most people would agree that they're morally wrong. And when it's played out, it's also illegal and it's clearly illegal for a reason. I'm all about sex positivity, but I don't know how you feel about this, Del, but I think in modern times, especially with like younger generations, people take the concept, I think personally, of not yucking someone's yum 
and not being into like different paraphilias or kinks too far where to the point where someone is not interested, oh, you're kink shaming me. And to me, that's not what kink shaming is. I don't think there's anything wrong. You know, like if you're not interested in BDSM or a foot fetish or cuckolding and you just are open with that, there's nothing wrong with that. Even if your partner does enjoy it, you should never feel pressured into taking part in something, especially sexually, that you don't want to do. Of course, if someone is going to ask you to partake in something like, I don't know, necrophilia, or I don't even want to say pedophilia, but there are things that are more obviously wrong than like what we were saying, foot fetishes. So I would hope no one is really asking people to participate in that. But like we know that's happened from other criminal cases. And like I said, as a whole, people know that that's wrong. I just think overall people take it a little too far nowadays, but I'm glad that people are kind of like more open to talking about these things sexually. I know a few years ago, Fifty Shades of Grey like took the world by storm and got people talking about BDSM. And I know there's a lot of arguments about that not being, you know, a great representation, especially of a healthy BDSM relationship, but it got people talking about it. So I think that's really important. And for a lot of, not a lot, but some of the stuff we talked about, there shouldn't be a stigma around it. And I think the world would probably be a little bit of a more understanding place and maybe like a sexually healthier place, especially in the US when we don't really want to talk about sex, might be helpful for people to have less of these stigmas. What do you think? So when it comes to not yucking someone's yum, I totally disagree with it. I think that if for whatever reason, you disagree with something, while depending upon what it is, I don't think that you should force your views on someone else. Like if someone wants to have a foot fetish, I find that to be weird and strange, but I'm not going to go out of my way to, you know, shame or try to hurt emotionally someone that has it. But I don't think that there's anything wrong with publicly saying, like, you might think it's normal. I don't think it's normal. And I think that paraphilias suffer from the fact that you have a bunch of things that kind of get fused into one under this very large umbrella. And so you have stuff that is unquestionably morally wrong. A lot of the specific ones that we went into, we can say are morally wrong. While others, like pickerism, for example, which was the piercing one, I find it to be weird, but it's not really a moral argument that can be made as a why. Like you stated, as long as it's acted upon safely and with consent, which is the most important part, you know, it's not something that I think should be outlawed. However... I do think that, like you said, the younger generations take the don't kink shame people way too far. I think that a lot of times kink shaming is combined with stigmatizing and demoralizing people, which is not. It's just saying that this particular activity gives me the ick. It gives me the yuck. I don't like it. And that's okay. I think that 
when it comes to like sex positivity. I mean, I guess it's an overall good thing. It's not something that I really go, you know, 100% for, but that's mainly because of kind of like the perceptions I have in my head where a lot of times when people talk about sex positivity, it's talking about accepting things that are abnormal or not a part of what is likely a healthy sexual relationship that people should be having. Yeah, I agree. I feel like sometimes when it comes to sex positivity and sometimes with these kinks, it's the loudest people that are like the most misinformed or like the most stereotypical. And then it leaves like a really bad taste in people's mouth when it comes to certain these types of things. I agree. It's not necessarily the truest representation of people in that community. I think you make a good point. And I think it's sometimes who gets platformed and who's doing the platforming that adds to that negative perception. So for example, there was a documentary on Bill Cosby and one of the people that they had on, and I only realized this, I didn't watch the documentary, but it was on like across conservative media. And you're like, hmm, why is conservative media promoting this thing. And it's because they had a person on there who was talking about how people should find ways to basically have intercourse with someone who has been drugged and that there was some type of way to do that in a legal consenting way. And I was just listening to her and I'm just like, no, no, this is not good. This is going too far. This is trying to make something that we have all agree is not okay. You're trying to bring that into kind of normal sexual behaviors. And I think that is, I don't want to say dangerous, but definitely not something that we should be moving towards. I would say it's dangerous, honestly. I mean, if someone is unconscious, they can't consent, you know, in that moment. And I maybe there's a way to do it safely to be like, yes, you can drug me and then like have your way with me. I don't know. I, that's not something I had heard of until we talked about this episode. But I think as a whole, like people making statements like that is very dangerous. Necrophilia and many other paraphilias are a part of a larger category of taboos. According to the Oxford Dictionary, taboo can be defined as a cultural or religious custom that does not allow people to do, use, or talk about a particular thing. It's based on the group's sense that it is excessively repulsive, offensive, sacred, or allowed only for certain persons. Taboos may be prohibited explicitly, for example, within a legal system or religion, or implicitly, for example, by social norms or conventions followed by a particular culture or organization. While cultures vary on what is considered acceptable behaviors, there are some taboos that are considered universal. Sigmund Freud speculated that incest and patricide were the only two universal taboos and formed the basis of civilization. Cannibalism, in-group murder, and incest are also taboos in the majority of societies. Exceptions can be found, such as marriages between brothers and sisters in Rome and Europe. Modern Western societies, however, do not condone such relationships. These familial sexual activities are criminalized even if all parties are consenting adults. 
Common taboos involve restrictions or ritual regulation of killing and hunting, sex and sexual relationships, reproduction, the dead and their graves, as well as food and dining or religious customs. Some argue that contemporary Western multicultural societies have taboos against tribalisms, for example, ethnocentrism, racism, sexism, homophobia, extremism, and religious fascism. Changing social customs and standards also create new taboos, such as bans on slavery, extension of the pedophilia taboo to epiphilia, prohibitions on alcohol, tobacco, and psychopharmaceutical consumptions, particularly among pregnant women. Also, sexual harassment and sexual objectification are increasingly becoming taboos in recent decades. In medicine, professionals who practice in ethical or moral gray areas or feel subject to social stigma, such as late termination of pregnancy, may refrain from public discussion of their practice. Jenny, what are your thoughts on taboos and the modern changes to what is considered a taboo? Glad that you mentioned some of the universal taboos because that is something I've always, we've always talked about in like college classes that I've taken and incest for sure is one that was mentioned. It is really interesting to see how there are changing social norms and what was once taboo isn't or what once was normal is now taboo especially like with something like sexual harassment and objectification and even like tobacco isn't really one that I would think about as like a taboo because I guess it is like so ingrained in our culture, but I personally don't have any friends that smoke cigarettes. So that's kind of interesting to see. And I think that's probably, I don't want to say an example of a good taboo because I don't want people that smoke to be ashamed, but I mean, there's enough research that shows that smoking is not good for you for, I think, most people to say, like, hey, don't do it. So I thought that was, it's interesting to see how things change. I'm curious as to, like, what's normal now that in, like, 25 years or so we'll think that is taboo or what's, like, the next wave of new taboos? What do you think? I think that's an interesting question because I feel like we grew up in the change in regards to marijuana and how the general public feels about it, where, I mean, back in the 90s and early 2000s, it was definitely a thing of marijuana is just like any other thing that you smoke, it's bad for you. And in more recent times, there's been a a whole state, including our own, that have legalized it for recreational use, not just medicinal use. So I definitely think that we would likely see the kind of conclusion of marijuana not being as taboo. I wonder if other currently consider illicit drugs will also follow it, such as mushrooms and other like psychedelics that, again, may have some medicinal use, especially for things like PTSD. I don't think that's going to happen with other drugs, but in that same way, it might likely be the reverse where there becomes more of a taboo on things like opioids and cocaine and drugs like that, where less and less people are not only using it, but open about their use of it. 
When it comes to universal taboos, I definitely agree. Incest is one of them. Cannibalism, necrophilia, you know, a lot of the paraphilias that we um, specify are definitely a taboo. I did find it interesting that Sigmund Freud specifically said patricide, which is the killing of one's father instead of a broader term that would have also encompassed the mother. I think that just goes to the historical views on, you know, like the patriarchy and men being inherently more valuable, thus the killing of a man is more detrimental to society. I don't agree with that, but I think that kind of lends to that type of idea. And I mean, I don't think there's any really wide taboo that I really disagree with. I definitely think that racism, sexism, extremism, ethnocentrism, all that, they are worthy of being taboos and worthy of being things that we generally don't want people to engage in because of the negative effects it has on not just the people immediately around them, but in the wider society. Do you think that some of the more niche uh, taboos are still going to be talked about, like when it comes to sexual objectification or drug use among pregnant women. Where do you see that going? I think it, the drug use among pregnant women, I think that will be seen as like a taboo. But when stuff like that, with the drug use for pregnant women, I mean, I would be shocked if I saw someone do it, but I guess it's kind of hard to say, like, to think of it as a taboo when it is, I guess, more like medical in nature. And like, we know this isn't good for you. You know, like with some of these, I guess you can argue like, like sexual harassment, like that's obviously like not good on an individual and like societal basis, but it's not the same as like something that will without a doubt harm your body and i'm not saying that like sexual harassment can't affect people mentally and really destroy their lives but it's not to me on the same level so but all that to say i think those three examples you gave del i think we are especially like the objectification and harassment we really are moving in a way that makes it seem like this is just a cultural standard now and a cultural norm that maybe we can eradicate it. I don't think they'll ever go away, but it will be to a point where it doesn't happen as often and it, it will be increasingly like more shocking to see. What do you think? I definitely agree. I think if we take anything from the Me Too movement and I have my criticisms of it, I think that just making people more aware of how much of a problem it is and how much of a negative effect it has on people is making sure that the societal norm is that this is a negative behavior, that this will have negative consequences if you engage in it. I guess my only thing is how long will that take? The person's name is blanking right now, but there was just a quote by one of the actresses on Stranger Things where she said that one of their producers propositioned her to engage in a threesome. 
And that's one of the reasons why she basically wanted to really quit Hollywood and focus on streaming, which just goes to show that even after Me Too and even after all the public attention, there's definitely a lot more work that's going to need to go into making sure that specifically sexual harassment and objectification is addressed not only in Hollywood, but in workplaces in general. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about the gorilla killer Earl Nelson. You can read more about this case and how to support us in the links below. We will be back next week with a brand new episode focused on Howard Unruh. As always, stay safe.